Tēnā koutou katoa kei te whakarongo mai, koe ki ngā, ngā roo, ngā motu o te moana nui a kiwa mai i te reo irirangi au Aotearoa. Ko Korai Hawkins aho, e hāri ake nei. The uh, transnational crime threat is going to be increasingly challenging for the Pacific. New report from Pacific law enforcement agencies outlines increased threat of transnational crime also. So we turned all other work back in the, in the last two days uh, in order to have all aircraft available for, uh, for retrieval of injured. We check in on the earthquake disaster response in Papua New Guinea and hear from a helicopter operator who's been flying the injured out of remote areas. And so We've come a long, long way when people didn't want to talk about it. On the media, we could not talk about rape openly and things like that. We talanoa to Shamima Ali from the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre about the ongoing struggle to end violence against women in Fiji and other Pacific countries. Pacific law enforcement agencies are anticipating an increased threat from transnational and organised crime in the region. It's one of the key messages to come from a gathering of Pacific police, customs and immigration officials in Nandi, Fiji last month. This is all outlined in a detailed report on the outcomes from the meeting which was released on Friday last week. The report, which outlined key threats from transnational and organised crime in the region, was compiled by the Australia-Pacific Security College. Its interim director, Jay Caldwell, joins me now. Kia Jay. Tell us a bit more about the details in this report. I, I think overarching it is kind of the message that The uh, transnational crime threat is going to be increasingly challenging uh, for the Pacific. Uh, That was a strong part of the conversation um, that we heard over the several days, both from academics and practitioners. There's a number of reasons driving uh, the sort of the change in the crime environment, and some of it links back to the COVID experience we've both been through and are going through, um, that uh, transnational criminal organisations um, they, they don't stay still, and uh, despite the fact they didn't have uh, necessarily, those from outside the region didn't have a lot of access, they developed new ways of engaging uh, with people and communities, um, and that's, that's created, I guess, an, an additional set of avenues for them to engage into the future. Um, there, we all know the financial pressures that come out of COVID, um, and that creates a challenge for Pacific communities in terms of perhaps a draw towards aspects of transnational crime. Uh, that could be both an income source and, I guess, a, a sort of a way to deal with the pressures uh, that, that, are, that are being faced. Um, and also, we've got other parts of the world that are getting better at pushing uh, transnational criminals out of their space. Um, and that means that the Pacific is a more attractive uh, location to look at. We heard uh, from the sort of international community looking at fin- uh, uh, financial uh, intelligence and looking at uh, the movement of illegal funds and saying that the Pacific Islands are increasingly turning up in their investigations in all parts of the world um, as they're seeing the movement of funds into the Pacific. So uh, I think one of the key messages coming out, Karoi, is that uh, this is going to be a more challenging environment for Pacific law enforcement and the communities and governments of the Pacific to be facing over the next period. And, and how much of that experience is is sort of local and country by country and and how much of, of the both the experience and the the action on this is, is occurring regionally um so th- look the it, it is different in different countries and that was really clear coming through uh in, in the conversation that while there are some i guess some overall 
big pieces in terms of what, uh, what transnational crime looks like um, in the Pacific. Um, and, and, and sort of the big three, if you look at it in terms of transnational crime is drug movement. Uh, and we've seen that in, 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 a, in a communities right across the Pacific. Uh, one of the big transnational crime threats is in the maritime space and particularly illegal fishing as a form of transnational crime. Um, one of the most concentrated risks the Pacific faces. Um, and, and trafficking in persons we know is an issue, but kind of don't know the bounds of it. Um, and it's not clear where it is uh, in terms of where it's at most effect. But we also saw real differences in the, in the conference in terms of how that, uh, the impact of transnational crime is felt um, and, and the where, where places where it's having most effect, particularly on communities in terms of cultural uh, cultural impacts in terms of how communities are knitted together can be experienced really differently. But this is in fact a whole range of crime types. You know, we talked about the big three, but they're right through from things like counterfeit goods as well. And as I said, sort of illegal money movements um, is a really important one as well. Um, but I think one of the things you've hit on there is about regional, that actually there are solutions in the region. And the, the real, one of the core messages that came out, particularly from our law enforcement leaders who are in the room is the importance of collaboration across police, customs and immigration, but the ability to collaborate across countries. Um, and I know the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat is doing some really important work at the moment on developing a regional transnational crime disruption strategy. Um, and they were there uh, sort of part of the conversation, but also kind of uh, collecting ideas that will be part of the Pacific's response uh, to this growing threat. And always uh, um, a lot of issues, concerns, difficulties, challenges raised at these conferences. Were there were there many solutions posed? Um, yeah, and, and I think a celebration, I guess, of some of the solutions that have been uh, Pacific-centred over a long period of time. So um, the, the transnational crime units uh, that have been established since I think it's 2004 um, to work uh, between police, customs and immigration in Pacific communities there's 28 transnational crime units doing a fantastic job in terms of coordination and collaboration, uh, both within countries and then across between countries. Um, not to say that those couldn't be improved over time, but that really is one of the uh, solutions that, that is genuinely Pacific-owned and Pacific-led. Uh, and uh, so 50% of those uh, include all agencies um, involved in law enforcement. And I think there's a real opportunity into the future um, and a, a number of our participants identified it to bring in people like the financial intelligence units uh, that are operating in Pacific countries um, into that transnational crime space. Um, one of the other things we found is, and we had a lot of partners from uh, donor countries, particularly um, or, uh, sort of who, uh, who had uh, ideas on the sidelines and proposals and possibilities in terms of both building solutions and uh, working with Pacific countries. And uh, that's really wonderful. I think that the Pacific, Pacific countries are in a Pacific uh, position of strength at the moment in terms of being able to negotiate, importantly, um, solutions that are Pacific-owned, uh, Pacific-led, and, and where the data is maintained uh, in terms of Pacific ownership as well. Um, and one of the key areas highlighted in the conference was in the maritime domain, and in maritime domain awareness, which will be a conversation I'm sure that'll be bubbling around the Pacific over the next couple of years 
as we develop additional uh, capability in maritime domain awareness. But, but I think one of the things to say is this conference is the start of a conversation going forward. So uh, Police, Customs and Immigration signed a partnership in 2018, a declaration of partnership, because they understood the importance of it. But this is the first time they've been able to bring all of their membership together. Um, the, the Secretary General for the forum, when he closed the conference, said he hoped this would be the first of many. Um, and, and I think there will be activities going like the conference and including conferences into the future. But it's really important to keep that um, pattern of collaboration and active engagement together, uh, both working in terms of uh, sort of collaborative uh, enforcement activity, but also working in terms of thinking about how we knit our systems together. As Papua New Guinea comes to grip with what's been called its worst earthquake in 20 years, the PNG Red Cross has had its volunteers out in force. The quake's confirmed death toll is seven, though there's some expectation this could increase as emergency service personnel make it into some of the remotest regions of the highlands. The PNG Red Cross's Secretary-General, Valichi Kwangliata, spoke with Don Wiseman about what they have encountered. There's seven people who have passed away and there's, I think, uh, 100 plus families that have been injured due to the earthquake. Families injured, so entire families? Yes, entire families, yeah. What sort of injuries have they suffered? The injuries suffered were because I'm, I'm in Port Moresby at the moment. Our volunteers are in, in, uh, in Lee and Groka and, and Medang. The injuries suffered were minor injuries due to um, fallen houses on, on them and stuff like that, yeah. And we know that there's been a substantial airlift of people out of those remote areas. Do you think everyone who has been injured has been brought out? I don't think everyone has been brought out because of the geographical location of the earthquake. There's, there's a few that are still, uh, still uh, finding their way towards where the, where the choppers are lifting the people out. Yeah. What's the impact, do you think, on livelihoods for, I presume, a large number of people? The impact is actually uh, it's, it's uh, severe at the moment because of the fallen houses and all that. Because of the earthquake, there's still assessments going on with PNG Red Cross. We are still uh, assessing the situation right now. So we, we should have a plan or, or an update by, by tomorrow if all goes well. Yeah. Have you been lifting material in? tarpaulins and water and this type of thing? Yep, we uh, airlifted water in from Lee to the remote areas and Medang as well. Medang is actually, uh, we've started our response in, in Medang because they finished with the assessment and then sent it to us. There's no uh, fatalities in Medang, but houses and all that have been damaged. So uh, volunteers are out um, trying to assist them uh, with uh, tents and stuff like that. Yeah. Given that it was centred this earthquake in a remote area in the highlands. Do you think that you have a full picture of exactly what has happened across that region now? Right now, I wouldn't say I have a full picture because of, we're still going on with the assessment in, in Goroka. Goroka is a, is a part of the highlands, so we're still going on with the assessment in, in Goroka, and um, they should get back to me by, by this afternoon. So I'm not too sure what the impact uh, impact is uh, in the Highlands, yeah. Do you think aid organisations will be looking for international support to help people? 
well, I'm I'm hoping they do because uh, in in PNG um, there's uh, there's limited funds trying to assist the people that have been affected. So I'm I'm hoping that some international organisations can actually assist us. Yeah. A helicopter operator helping extricate the injured is Manolos Aviation. Its principal, Jürgen Ruh, says they operate eight twin-engined helicopters, typically medevacking pregnant women facing complications. But he told Don Wiseman for the past several days they've done nothing but airlift injured people from remote areas to cities such as Ley. We have turned back all other commercial work, uh, like you know, we, we do a mix of work, which is medivacs and uh, and other work. So we turned all other work back in the, in the last two days uh, in order to have all aircrafts available for uh, for retrieval of injured. Uh, but as of today, I think it has basically slowed down. So today, I did not have any requests to retrieve any injured as yet. How many people would you have medivacked? So I haven't got a tally on that, but it's uh, yeah, we've, we've been busy since. Since hours after the earthquake, we've been fairly busy receiving phone calls from uh, from villages. Again, there's no health worker there. And it's up to us and to assess the urgency to make sure we don't bring anyone in who doesn't have any injuries which don't require treatment. And the information is quite difficult to uh, decimate when, when you get them from people in the village who don't have a health worker with them. But so far, all people we've brought in were children and women and men who had um, mainly uh, severe head injuries uh, from fallen rocks, landslides, were probably buried for a while and got, got back up again. You'd have a very clear idea of the extent of the destruction that's happened. How bad is it? Well, one helicopter was actually in the air during the earthquake. They were retrieving a mother with birth complications, and they did see the landslides happening in front of their eyes, the, um, the side of the mountain falling down its own mountain and, uh, and dust coming up from the landslide. And once they landed in lay, they were told that there was an earthquake. The, there's a fair bit of landslides, mainly in areas which are not inhabited. And the nature of the terrain in, in PNG, which is fairly soft soil, I think results in the earthquake being more of a wobble than a sharp vibration. And also all the houses are built mainly on stilts and with timber and they've got lots of flexibility in it. So the the earthquake surprisingly didn't cause as much damage as it would have caused in other countries. The latest official death toll we have is that seven people have died. With what you've seen, would you expect that figure to go up? I think this is probably seven confirmed death, but there will be a lot more than that. I personally don't think it's going to be more than 100, but it should be more than seven, definitely. So as you say, quiet now on Wednesday. Is that it? There will be people who have had food gardens wrecked who are not going to be able to get water and this sort of thing, and I wonder whether you become involved in that work. If there's a requirement for that, yes, we'll get involved and bring relief supplies in, but that's all from we didn't have any requests of, of that nature from, from any of the government departments. Fiji's long-standing advocate for women's rights in the Pacific said being recognised by the government of Vanuatu for her service is an honour. Coordinator of the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, Shamima Ali, was recently in Vanuatu to launch the Vanuatu Women's Centre book entitled Her Story. She was then awarded Vanuatu's 40th anniversary medal from President Nikinike Murumbaravu for her work in eliminating violence against women and children. Susanna Suiswiki spoke with Shamima Ali and began by asking how she felt about receiving this recognition from Vanuatu. Well, one, it was unexpected because uh, I had been invited to launch uh, Vanuatu Women's Centre's history 
and I've been, uh, you know, connected to them since 1992 with Marilyn Tahi, who is the founder and the leading lady there uh, of the center. So uh, I did not expect a medal or anything else uh, in my honor, but uh, I did go to do that. So it was very pleasant surprise and uh, I'm not one for medals and awards and things but it is good in this time it meant a lot to me because I'm going through a lot in politically in our country I've been speaking out against things that I don't believe should be happening so you know that recognition is not here and it is good to get it from another person in fact what is good is you getting that recognition and ending violence against women for my contribution and other women's contribution I represent that in mm. Fiji as well as in the Pacific, and Vanuatu is one of the, my favorite places that I've been visiting for over 30 years now. And so, yeah, so f- in, in that way, it, it was a great honor, and, and I really appreciate that. And thank the uh, government of Vanuatu, the prime minister and the president. Wonderful. So you've mentioned that you were there to also launch the book Her Story, which reveals the history of Vanuatu's Women's Centre. So what role did you have in the centre and are you still involved um, with them to this day? Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, we, the work on ending violence against women and girls began in the Pacific well, in, in, in earnest in the uh, late 80s and the beginning of the 90s. And that was the first regional meeting in 1992 on ending violence against women and girls where Pacific women leaders met from about 15 countries, including West Papua, Kanaki, Tahiti, uh, you know, and Niue, Nauru, all the Melanesian countries and up north, Palau and Marshall Islands uh, and uh, Ponape. So, you know, we all met and we talked about what was happening and out of that came the Pacific Women's Network Against Violence Against Women, the secretariat of which sits with us in the crisis center in Fiji. Uh, and that network has survived so far, you know, offering training, mentoring each other as well. It started from Fiji than everyone else. And the Vanuatu Women's Center was represented, Vanuatu was represented by Marilyn Tahi, a very formidable leader. Uh, and uh, she went back and she was determined she was going to have this in Vanuatu. And she started in 1992. So that's when, you know, we met all of us together through the National Council of Women in Vanuatu, Marilyn and a few women, intrepid women who met and said, we're going to do this. And that's how it all started. And since then, we have, uh, you know, Marilyn and I, uh, with other women leaders, have planned and, uh, and, uh, and strategized and, uh, and, you know, the trainings, the mentoring, uh, and in looking at emerging issues and so on, the whole network uh, works together. And uh, yeah, and that's since then we have been in and out. They come for training to Fiji attachments. We all go over there. We're part of their retreats. We're part of their strategic planning. We actually managed. We were the managing agent for DFET, for the Australian government, for about two terms, about ten years, for the Vanuatu Women's Centre, uh, instead of an Australian or other NGO. Uh, international NGO managing them, they preferred us to be the managing agent because we were the most, uh, you know, the the longest uh, at that point in time standing uh, uh, center. So yeah, so we were the managing agents, and uh, and uh, you know that is that they they're independent to do their own programs, but we just the funding came through us, and we just managed that, and eventually they you know went off on their own. They were ready for it, and we pushed them up to become independent, and they have been getting direct funding from Australia, New Zealand, and other uh, funding agencies, and they've been doing very, very well indeed. So the history is rich 
is very, very rich and uh, they have developed their own programs. Um, and the women who have been there before. In fact, I'm not the only one who got a medal, about 15 other women uh, over the years who have served the crisis, uh, the Vanuatu Women's Center, including Marilyn, the present coordinator, Vola Matas, and, oh, you know, the, and a whole lot of people, a whole range from the oldest in the 90s right through to the ones who are there now. So that was such a great gesture from the part of their government to honor these women who have worked not only in Vila but throughout the islands of Vanuatu. Awesome. Thank you for that, Shamima. So just coming back to Fiji, um, the Women's Crisis Centre has been around for almost 40 years. The challenges that women in Fiji faced back then, have they improved? Look, you know, we, violence against women is uh, is such an issue that it's not going to go away. It's years and years and layers and layers of patriarchy that we've gone through. And to, you know, to, to, get, to end violence against women and girls, we have to uh, end patriarchy, you know, and, and we have to give women more equality. So that work is a work in progress, but a lot has improved since we started in 19, we started in 1984. A lot has improved. We have to celebrate those things. The legislation and, the, you know, the legislations have improved a lot. But the, the best thing is that everyone has come to the table. It's on everyone's agenda now, including government's agenda. So, you know, so all of us together, faith-based organizations that were the hardest to penetrate. Uh, then we've got our culture, tradition. You know, that is another unit that we needed to we need to work with. So, you know, the fact that we might not think the same way about it, but we are all united in our objective that this is a terrible thing that happens to women and girls and children, and that we must get rid of it in whichever way, whether using the faith, whether using traditional uh, methods and things, or, you know, like us feminists, we use the rights-based approach, and we are encouraging that. So, And government now, you know, Fiji has come to a space where now, to a stage where now, it is, I think, only the second country uh, in the Pacific, first is Australia, second, to, to work on a national prevention plan to end all forms of violence against women and children. And it's uh, led by the Ministry for Women here, and it's an all-of-government, all-of-civil-society approach, and uh, it's, it's being finalized. The, the final draft is being finalized right now. So, you know, so we've come a long, long way when people didn't want to talk about it, on the media, we could not talk about rape openly and things like that, to where now everyone is discussing it. It's on everyone's uh, uh, table. And no issue, whether we talk about climate change, whether we talk about COVID, whether we talk about the disasters, no issue is complete without the, 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 without the mention of ending violence against women or that it is not, in, uh, you know, it, it is not part of every disaster that we have. So, you know, people are addressing it and that is what we have. And we have to celebrate. But a lot more women are reporting from being one of the most underreported of, uh, of crimes. Domestic violence, of course, we have huge numbers reporting. Still, we're not seeing the full picture, uh, you know, but we've also done national surveys around the Pacific, and that's really good. Uh, you know, ours is due again after 10 years. Vanuatu is due, Kiribati is due, Solomon's is due. So we have a repeat of that and see whether we have made any changes or not. So, you know, uh, you know so we have all of this going. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, so I think we have come a long way. Rape, the most underreported of crimes against women, that is now showing its head. We still believe that we might be seeing as much as, as as little as 5%, but still, you know, from almost nothing 
to people reporting rape and people addressing it. These are things that we need to celebrate. So those are the changes that I have seen. Nga mihi mo te whakarongo mai, koina te mutunga o nga ngaru te mwana nui a kiwa. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Kakite anon. <laughs>